Well, it's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning back in the pulpit. It's been a while since I've had the opportunity to, to preach the Word of God and just found myself really excited and yet dealing with one of the most difficult topics uh, that I've preached on uh, in, in my time of communicating God's Word. I want to thank Zach Stevens, our associate pastor, Brandon Barnes, one of our elders, for getting us started in this series with the first two questions. If you've not had the opportunity to watch those services, I encourage you to go on our YouTube page or online and, uh, and check those out. Uh, I want to welcome those of you online this morning. I know in the second service we'll have some ladies who are watching on the highway uh, on their way home from women's retreat. Uh, guys, I hope you've survived with the kids and the laundry and the whatever, um, but uh, we're excited to have the ladies come back. We are dealing this morning with really what is an age-old question. It's a kind of a universal question. It is the question of pain and suffering, or why would a good God allow suffering? British theologian John Stott said this, he said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. That's quite a statement. Suffering is a mental block, or a probably more set, better said, a heart block for a lot of people. The psalmist in Psalm 37 and 77, among other places, wrestled with this idea, why do bad things happen to good people? He equally wrestled with, why do good things happen to bad people? It's a universal question. Uh, Mark Middleberg, in his book on apologetics, said suffering is generally considered to be the number one issue causing people to doubt or disbelieve in the existence of God. It's a very real thing. I remember one summer afternoon, standing at the graveyard, at the cemetery, at the graveside, uh, in Avery Stoddard and Ledger, as a casket the size of a shoebox was placed into the ground. And a young couple, barely in their early 20s, wrestled with this question of pain and suffering. But you know, this, this question is not unique to moderns. We've hinted at the Psalms. But going back to the oldest book in the Bible, in the story of Job. You may remember the story of Job. And if you're not familiar, Job is one who faces a severe trial over a long period of time. He loses his resources, his assets, his family, and even his physical health. And Job cries out to God. He says this in Job chapter 10. I will say to God, do not declare me guilty. Let me know why you prosecute me. Is it good for you to oppress, to reject the work of your hands, to favor the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh, or do you see as a human sees? Are your days like those of a human, or your years like those of a man, that you look for my iniquity and search for my sin, even though you know that I'm not wicked, and there is no one who can rescue from your power? And listen to this question that he ends with. Your hands shaped me and formed me. Will you now turn and destroy me? The question of suffering is a universal question, and we need the Lord's help to answer this question. I will tell you that one of the great points of solace is that the Bible has a lot to say to this question. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Bow your heads with me this morning. Oh God and Father, we come before you this morning to unpack this topic from a biblical point of view. Lord, we wrestle with this on this side of eternity. Lord, I know there are men and women, young people, older people, listening, tuning in, sitting here today, 
with their own stories of suffering, some of them current stories, some of them prolonged stories. Lord, I just ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would minister to their hearts today. God, I pray for the skeptic who questions how a good God could allow human suffering, that they would receive the answers that satisfy their heart more than their minds today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we look at what the Bible says about suffering, I want to kind of catalog some different kinds of suffering, and then how does the culture or the world typically respond to answering this question of why God would allow such things? First, there's micro-suffering. As we look at categories, micro-suffering. This would be the, the suffering on the level of your personal life. What we might call the three D's of death, disease, and divorce. These big things that impact us and cause great grief and anxiety and trial. But it's also the more trivial things that weigh on us. In the last 20 months, it's the isolation, broken relationship related to the pandemic. Or it could be the lost job that has caused us great stress in an unforeseen, uncertain future. This is the area of interpersonal struggle. It's that couple that then had to walk out their grief of having buried their little child. But then there's macro suffering. We could say that macro suffering comes in two major categories. The first is what insurance companies would call acts of God. Natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, forest fires, tornadoes. These seemingly random events that can kill anywhere from a handful of people to ultimately even thousands. And they're the things that leave people asking, if God is good, if God is in control, why would he allow this to happen? But the broader and greater category of macro suffering is man-made suffering. This is the things like war and abuse of all different kinds, rape, murder, human trafficking, mass shootings, genocide. This is the suffering that my neighbor, Jafet, experienced. Across the street and two houses down from me, my neighbor Jafet, who lost his life in the last year, he was raised in Rwanda. And in 1994, he literally had to hide his daughters while a rival tribe came through and wiped out his village. And somehow he was able to escape and, and sought asylum, found asylum here in the United States of America. Macro suffering. 90% of human suffering is caused at the hands of other human beings. It's an alarming statistic. So while we wrestle with natural disasters, as we'll see from the scripture even affirming, the idea that, that we suffer often, most often, at the hands of other people. Just in the 20th century alone, three totalitarian regimes out of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao took the lives of over 100 million people. I wish I had taken the time to give some sort of graphic to help us understand what 100 million people looks like. But I will tell you that the combined natural disasters in the same century didn't come close to this number. Human suffering is most often caused at the hands of other human beings. It's tragic. So why does God allow it? Well, there's probably two main reasons that the culture would postulate or the world would postulate that God allows this level of human suffering. And the Bible speaks to these two as well. And number one reason is he does not care. God allows it because he's ambivalent. He doesn't care. He may be God. This is the God of deism, right? He may be God, but ultimately he's 
busy doing other things, whatever that might be. This is the cry of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee when that squall breaks forth. And it's a storm, by the way. Remember that the disciples, many of them were seasoned, well-weathered fishermen. And yet in this particular squall, they were fearing for their lives. And it's fascinating that they went, there's something that they knew about who Jesus was because they went to their rabbi, these seasoned fishermen in that moment. And the text says that Jesus was asleep in the stern on a cushion. And so the disciples go up to him, and what are the first words that they say? Teacher, don't you care that we drown? So the world would say God allows this kind of suffering because he doesn't care. Ultimately, we're dealing with the idea of, is God good? And the world would say, no, he's not. Now, it's interesting that people don't, will wrestle with the problem of suffering or the problem of evil. They don't typically wrestle with the problem of good. Right? And particularly for those of us in the West, much of our life is uh, experiencing the common graces of God. We have decent jobs, decent vehicles, a relatively uh, nice home. Our children are, tend to be relatively healthy. We've weathered the pandemic without major illness. And yet people don't struggle with why God is so good, why so much of life is a blessing from the hand of God. In fact, much of the world will completely ignore him until such time as acute suffering enters their life. And then they want to know, why doesn't he care? More we could say on that. We could spend a lot of time there. We won't. Second major response from the world is, he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. This is the God of what theologians would call process theology. He may be God, he may been, have been involved in, in creating the universe, but he, he really doesn't have any effect to change it. In fact, the universe changing actually affects him. He is not uh, consistent, he is not unchanging, but because the universe is changing, God changes. And one commentator I was reading noted, a God like this wouldn't be worth worshiping. A God who is inconsistent, a God who was not unchanging, a God who was not in control of the universe. So the second response is this, that God is not great. The culture does all kinds of other things that, with evil and suffering. Uh, in particular, with evil, they try to deify evil. Certain world religions do that. We see that. This is, would be the God of Star Wars theology, right? The dark side of the force. And on and on we could go. But what does the Bible say about God's greatness? Anchor verse for this is 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted over all. God is good. He is great. He does care about suffering. And as we're going to learn this morning, he has done something about it. So what does the Bible have to say about pain and suffering? We owe much of our outline this morning, I will tell you, to a little booklet by Kurt DeHaan. Kurt DeHaan was a uh, writer for what used to be Radio Bible Class. If you're familiar with the Our Daily Bread devotional, it was the parent organization. And uh, he wrote a little booklet called Exactly This Topic, Why Would a Good God Allow Suffering? We owe much of our outline this morning to Kurt DeHaan's uh, treatment of this topic, but we've added a couple things and, and, and modified it. But ultimately, that there, we're going to look at five reasons, and now we're turning our attention to not what the world says, not what we uh, resolve when we're in that moment of pain and suffering, but what does the Bible say? The Bible says ultimately five things. Number one, God allows pain and suffering to alert us to the problem of sin. 
God allows pain and suffering to reveal that he suffered too. God allows pain and suffering to direct us to respond to him in faith. God allows pain and suffering to shape us to be more like Christ if we're Christians this morning. And finally, God allows pain and suffering to unite us in loving community. Let's look at these five points. Before we do so, perhaps an illustration would be helpful. Uh, Back in April, early April, I developed a problem in my wrist. In fact, it was so bad that uh, there was swelling. I was swollen up to like the size of a baseball. It was in excruciating pain. It was unusable. And it was actually hot to the touch. And so I went to the walk-in clinic, and after some uh, diagnosis, they ended up doing an x-ray and found that I have a broken scaphoid. You can see it here in the picture if you, uh, if you can see the arrow. It's completely broken in half. What's interesting about this broken scaphoid is it's been that way for 30 years, since 1992. I remember the injury. I remember the night it happened and never had it x-rayed. Now, I was able to live most of my 30 years, including raising boys and sports and coaching and splitting wood, just all the stuff of life, largely without issue. But at some point, the brokenness within came due, and it manifested itself in pain and suffering, if you will. This is an illustration of pain and suffering that alerts us that there is a brokenness issue. And there's brokenness in three areas. Number one, it's the idea that something is wrong with the world. The Bible and Jesus himself and John's gospel will affirm that things are not how they should be. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But as we're going to get to in a little bit, take heart, I have overcome the world. And so it begins in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebel against God. In full-on willful rebellion, and that, the effects of that extend all the way to Romans 8, where Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the whole of creation, not just us as human beings, the plant and animal kingdoms, the whole creation has been subjected to futility, Paul says, and he goes on and he says, and is groaning in its bondage to decay, longing for redemption. Suffering is a reminder, an indicator that we long for redemption, but so does the entire creation. Something is wrong in the world. Something is wrong with God's creatures. In Job chapter 1, the angels, it says in chapter 1, come and they present themselves before God. And Satan also comes. Satan is a proper name that means adversary or enemy. And he comes before God seeking to destroy God's special creation, Job. But more importantly, seeking to destroy the relationship that God and Job have with each other. After Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve's rebellion, very shortly thereafter, their son Cain goes out into the field with his brother, and the scripture says that he has malice in his heart, and he strikes and kills his brother. And so begins the legacy of humanity. Something is wrong with God's creatures. But something is wrong with me, too, and you. And we are in need of a redeemer. We are in need of a rescuer. The psalmist says this about his personal suffering. He says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. In Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. The anguish of, uh, and suffering of the psalmist here 
God was using to move him to a place where he understood that he had a sin issue. God allows suffering at times to alert us to the problem of sin, to alert us that things aren't how they should be. God allows pain and suffering, number two, to praise God, to reveal to us that he suffered too. The writer of Hebrews makes this really clear in chapter 2. He says, therefore he, Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. There's point number one. And listen to this line. Listen, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus knows exactly our suffering, and categorically, we're talking about temptation here. But as we talk about the cross, Jesus knows our suffering in every category. Rejection, bitterness, the the whole gamut, all the way to death. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Familiar passage, perhaps, says, Instead, he, that is Jesus, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus suffered for us all the way to the point of giving his life and dying for us to resolve point number one. The fact that the world is broken, God's creation is broken, and that I am broken. He went to the cross. He gave himself for us. To what effect, Gary, to what effect does that happen? Two chapters later, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have a great high priest one who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive both mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We come boldly to God through Jesus to receive mercy and to find grace in our time of need, in our time of suffering. John Piper said it so succinctly when he said this, to put it most starkly and simply, the ultimate reason that the suffering exists is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God by suffering himself to overcome our suffering. This is the gospel, and the gospel is the answer to human suffering. We could literally close in prayer right there. He goes on, he says, the suffering of the utterly innocent, infinitely holy Son of God in the place of utterly undeserving sinners to bring us to everlasting joy is the greatest display of the glory of God's grace that ever was or will be. It may be that God has allowed suffering in your life amongst other reasons so that you would hear even this morning the message of the gospel. C.S. Lewis has said that God whispers to us in our pleasure, that he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. And our pain is God's megaphone to rouse a, a deaf world. Have you heard from God in your pain? Point number three, God allows pain and suffering to direct us to respond to him by faith. Maybe you say this morning, listen, I'm a Christian. I I know and have received and believed the gospel. But what about what I'm walking through? 
Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He bears testimony here and says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that, God, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead. You hear what Paul's saying here? He's saying that whatever he and his companions were going through at the time, that the suffering that they were enduring was so great that they did not want to live any longer and then began to think maybe this is a death sentence so that God can display the power of resurrection by raising us back to life. I don't know if you've ever hit this level of despair. Paul did. But it was so that he directed his faith and his trust to God who holds even the very power of life. 2 Corinthians 12, at the end of the same letter, he says, My God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And he goes on. Number four, pain and suffering is allowed to shape us to be more like Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, part of the effect of what God allows in our lives is to shape us. Not always pleasant at the time. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, listen to this, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so now there's a reversal that takes place. That when we suffer, because God suffered through Christ too, we have fellowship, a unique kind of fellowship with him, particularly when we suffer for our faith in Jesus. But even beyond that, in suffering in general, then Paul and James both compound this idea that suffering shapes us. Paul says in Romans 5, not only that, but we boast in our affliction because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. James adds to this, he says, then consider it great joy brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And so the believer who turns in faith to Christ in that season of trial, you've met them, right? They are someone who has this patient endurance about life. They can weather any storm. There's someone who has this maturity of character, this resolve of godliness, and there's someone that's ever communicating and exuding this idea of eternal hope in Christ, no matter what the circumstances. Lastly, God allows pain and suffering, and I love this one, to unite us in loving community. To unite us in loving community. Suffering helps us to see our need for other believers and our ability to help other believers. This is 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, where Paul says that we are in not a codependent relationship with each other, but interdependent relationships, that we're arms and legs and hands and feet and eyes and ears, and we need each other for the growth of the body. Listen to this powerful verse also in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction, all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And the psalmist says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that he saves those who are crushed 
in spirit. And wonder this morning if that describes you. Are you crushed in spirit this morning? Part of the reason God calls us to gather together is to be able to care for one another. I wonder if you've had the opportunity to share what you're walking through with another believer. If you're not in a season of tremendous pain and suffering, are you cognizant, are you aware of those around you and what they're going through? Are you looking for opportunities to be those hands and feet of Jesus? Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Five reasons that God allows pain and suffering according to the Bible to alert us to the problem of sin, to reveal to us that he suffered too, to direct us in faith to him, to shape us to be more like his son and to unite us in loving community. There's so much more we could say this morning, but I want to move to application. I want to ask you this question. Have you become bitter or are you becoming better? Have you become bitter or are you becoming better? While we've looked at what the scripture says this morning, I want to share with you a testimony from the real life of someone who's near and dear to my heart. This is the story of a prolonged season of suffering from the lives of two of my dear friends, Caleb and Larry Cole. Take a look at this video. Our story starts 30 years ago. In June of 1992, my wife Barbara and I had been married 18 years. We had a rock solid relationship. She was mine, I was hers, and that's just the way it was. We had two growing daughters um, who were healthy. They were just starting high school. One was middle high school, the other one was just beginning high school. Backtrack a little bit to earlier that spring, my wife had suffered a miscarriage. She was 39 at the time. And um, by September, she became pregnant again with our daughter. So we went up to Yale to have the ultrasound and um, everything went fine until the the technician kind of, you know, how they kind of look, but they, they don't want you to know that they're, they're alarmed. And as it turned out, after another hour, hour and a half in the ultrasound room, it was determined that the, the baby had a cardiac defect. I'll say at this point in time, they, uh, they also told us that, you know, termination was an option. They told, they told us it, it may not go well, it, it, it may. Um, termination was not an option with us, ever. Well, that started a uh, 20 month odyssey of um, open heart surgeries and cardiac caths and belly surgeries and a myriad of other maladies and procedures that go with that. It was just a, um, a time of really, really high stress for Barbara and I. During all that time, um, we never knew whether we would ever get to take her home. She'd been there for six months and ran through a million dollars of insurance. We were uninsured at that point. I didn't know how I was gonna be able to deal with that and, and it hadn't come up yet, but I knew it was gonna. How long can we do this? How long can she do this? And, and we didn't know. And finally, she got stable enough, we finally got to take her home after being in a level one trauma center for almost two years. We took her home. She had a great life. You know, she went to school, she graduated from high school. She had a lot of friends at the chapel. During that time when we were so busy with Kate, it was a time that we were, Barbara and I were both absent from the chapel. 
but we saw the results of all the prayer um, on a daily basis. Of the 20 months that we went back and forth to Yale, we missed going there maybe a small handful of times. We never got in an accident. The car never broke down. You know, little miracles like that that just kept happening on a daily basis that allowed us to do what we needed to do to be with Kate. She was a happy kid. Eventually she developed um, lupus and the combination of lupus and the cardiac issues that she had was too much for her. And we lost her in March of um, 2017. Obviously, we were all devastated. Our whole, our whole family revolved around Katie. I remember that the night when we got the phone call when Katie was dying. And it was three o'clock in the morning or whatever, and uh, whoever was in charge said, you better get in here. We can't, her, her numbers are going down, we can't stabilize her. And all the trip up there, I kept saying, God, I can't lose her. I can't lose her. And I knew I was gonna lose her. Mm. And somehow, um, and, and during all that time, you, you don't know how you, when you face that, you don't know how you're gonna get through it. That's when God took a blanket that was woven out of part love and part grace. The family. Mm. And um, he said, be still. Our second trial was Jerrica. My daughter became pregnant with um, her daughter. Unfortunately, that was a normal pregnancy. When she was an infant and she had a well baby checkup, they noticed that her head circumference was off scale. Her brain was swollen. And after a, uh, an investigation, they determined she was a shaken baby. My wife was devastated. This is tough. She couldn't understand how somebody could hurt a baby. And I remember her coming home and she just absolutely collapsed in my arms. Jerrica turned out okay. And she developed normally. Um, right now she's fine, she's living in Norwich. But that was just one of the other traumas that we had it as we went along. Now the other part of the story, I got a call from one of my friends in the emergency room and says, you better sit down, I got terrible news. I'm thinking, well, it's gotta be one of the kids. So I said, okay, I'm sitting, what are you, what are you going to tell me? She says, we have your daughter here. Um, she just had a traumatic birth. She wasn't due for months yet. I went to Pequot and I got there about the same time the Yale team got there and they were still resuscitating Caleb. And before they were, they took him, they were just getting ready to transport him back. They said, do you want to go see him? And they, they, the look on their face was like, he's not going to make this. So I went in and he was about that big. You could see through his skin. He was so little that when they put him in the ambulance and they were, you know, gave him enough um, fluid to get back to Yale, they put a, an IV bag in with him and it landed on his hand, and it crushed his finger. It's, it was a little IV back. That's how small he was. And he was at L&M for another, well, probably two months. And then we, they let us brought it, bring him home at three pounds. And he's been with us ever since. During that time, my wife developed um, slight COPD. She began to have frequent admissions to the hospital. 
And then uh, one time she had a bout of respiratory failure, went into the hospital and they couldn't, they couldn't, um, they couldn't get her off the ventilator without her crashing. So what they do in a situation like that is they put a trach in. So now I have a daughter, I had a daughter with a trach and now I have a wife with a trach. We finally got Barbara, her, her ventilator settings and oxygen requirements stuffed down to a point where we could get her home. Growing up in this house with a family with all these medical issues and background, it's, it becomes routine. You know, you don't think everyone else lives like this, but you're like, you get used to it. You're like, okay, like, you know, we're going to the hospital. We're gonna, we're doing this. My role in the family was more of the pastoral role of like, you know, how can I keep the family together by looking to Christ first? We're only made to know so much. And, and Christ knows the human heart more than anybody or anything. Be surrounded with Christian fellowship to to continue to lift yourself up, uh, not so that you can boast about like how great you are, but how great Christ is through your suffering. Dave Ward said in one of his sermons, death ends things. If you're a Christian, death ends things. Death ends suffering in terms of earthly suffering. You know, God has this. Mm. It may not be fun and it may not be good, but ultimately, he has this. Through every storm. 
Redeemer and Lord of Lords. He is, He is a child of heaven and son of man, provider, protector, the great I am, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. He is, He is. Hope for the hopeless, rest for the God has this. God has this, Larry said. I don't know what your story is or where your point of suffering is. My prayer is that was shared in the word today or in the testimony would minister to your heart. You know, we began with this question that Job asked of God. He said, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal? Are your years like those of a man? In Jesus, the answer is yes. That Jesus came and lived human suffering, lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death we deserve to die. Because of Jesus, we can definitively say that God does care about suffering and has done something about it. So what can we do in response to suffering? We can be grateful for all the good that God gives and all that he is. We can be present in the lives of those who are suffering today. Chances are that suffering friends of yours doesn't need an intellectual response, at least not now, that they just need your presence over the long haul. And in fact, that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus uh, came and was present with us. Even in Job's story, God never answers Job's question. He's just present with him. He gives himself. So we can be grateful, we can be present, and we can be expectant that one day he will put everything to right. Revelation 21 tells us that there will be mo no more death, crying, pain, tears, and so forth, that he will make everything new. In his little commentary on this topic, Kurt DeHaan, near the end, writes these words. He says, we cry out for complete answers, not unlike Job. God offers himself instead, and that is enough. Bow your heads with me this morning. Before I pray, I want to just ask you this morning, give you the opportunity. Perhaps in your own life this morning, you've never had that therefore moment that we talked about in Hebrews chapter 4. That therefore we can approach the throne of God with boldness to do what? To receive mercy and grace, to obtain grace to help us in our time of need. If you have never said yes to Jesus, I want to invite you and ask you, with every head bowed this morning, are you ready to say yes to Jesus? If you are, just raise your hand up real quick so I can see it. If you're ready to say yes, amen. Ready to say yes to Jesus this morning. Amen. I'm going to pray for us this morning. If you're online this morning, you're ready to say yes to Jesus, just jump on the chat and say, I'm ready to say yes to Jesus, and we'll get back to you. Pray this prayer. 
God, I thank you that in, your, in suffering you've revealed that I'm broken and need a savior. Jesus, I thank you that you suffered for me. God, I come to you boldly because of Jesus to receive your mercy and your forgiveness, to obtain grace to help me in my time of need. God, I need you in my life. I say yes to Jesus this morning. Amen and amen.